Remember, this got distributed to the churches of Asia Minor, and we think John may have been the bishop of the whole seven church circuit in uh, modern-day Turkey. And so he wanted the people that he knew and ministered to, when they finally got this book, John wanted them to know, look, I saw this stuff. It was me, John. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, this is becoming a habit with John, and we don't want to get too hard on him because it is a pretty phenomenal thing he was seeing. But he becomes so overwhelmed at different points in the book of Revelation that he falls down to worship the angel. Angels are pretty spectacular beings, I'm convinced. And yet, they always, the true angels, the good angels, will always tell a person, do not do that. I am your fellow servant. You only worship God. I mean, we, we together, we worship God. Don't, don't worship me. That's how you know it's a good angel. Verse 9, then the angel said, see that you do not do that. John, stop doing that. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. The Greek is worship God alone. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, this reminds us of Daniel, right? Daniel was given uh, many similar revelations by God that John got. Daniel saw uh, the end times. Daniel saw the last kingdoms of the tribulation period and various battles and things. And, and Daniel saw a lot of what John saw. And yet it says in Daniel 12, verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the what? End. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So Daniel wanted to know what all this stuff meant. And God says, Daniel, it's not for you to understand. Write it down, close the book, go your way. In the end times, these things will be open to them. And so now we come as John is writing down what he is looking at. And at the end... The angel says to John, don't seal it. The time is at hand. We well, say, well, wait a minute now. What, what do you mean? The time is at hand. I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. We're still waiting. That's true. But you have to understand the end times. What did the angel say, what the Lord say to Daniel? Seal up the book until the time of the end, right? We know from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that it says, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past of the fathers by the prophets, verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. In these what? 
last days. The last days, it's hard for us to, to understand that, but the last days in the mind of God, and don't forget, with God, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day, so it's not a big deal for God, but the last days technically started with the first coming of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus came, the last days technically began. And so because they entered into the time of the end that God said to Daniel, he tells John, who was living in the first century, write it down, but don't seal it. Okay, the time has come for people to read and understand. Well, now we get into verse 11, which is a very debated, uh, controversial, confusing verse. Let me read it to you. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And people read that and go, what is God actually saying here? When you come to a confusing passage and you don't know what it really is trying to say to you, pray and then take a reverse approach. Weed out all the things you know it's not saying and then see what's left. Could this mean that God is saying here that God does not want men or women to repent and to change? Well, that would fly against everything we know about Revelation, where God is all throughout the book giving people a chance to repent and come to Christ. It would, it would contradict the whole gospel, go into all the world and preach the good news to everybody. God desires for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's why he's been patiently waiting, giving people a chance in the face of unrelenting sin that people keep flaunting in the face of a holy God. Why doesn't he do something about it right now? Because he's giving people time to repent. So God does want people to change. So what is being said here? Well, I think the angel's words need to be understood in the light of the repeated statement, Behold, I come quickly, stated three times, basically. And as well as the other statement we read in verse 10, for the time is at hand. If we take that along with verse 11, it seems to be saying to us that Jesus' coming is going to take many people by surprise. Now, I'm talking about unbelievers now, okay? It's okay if it takes us somewhat by surprise. It's going to because even though we know he's coming at any time, the rapture could happen any minute. Let's face it, when it happens, you're going to be surprised. But that's not going to matter because we're, we're right with the Lord. So here in verse 11, the unbelieving world is in view primarily, all right? And what the Lord seems to be saying is that when he comes, his coming is going to be a surprise to many. And if they wait until they see him coming, it's going to be too late to repent and to change. Because at that moment, everybody is going to be cemented in whatever place they were in, whether they were a believer or an unbeliever. I mean... Think of the second coming. The rapture's already happened. We're in heaven. But Jesus is coming back to the earth, the second coming, right? And on the earth you have many, many unbelievers who have gathered to go to war against the Lord, right? But you have believers that have hidden out and have escaped the Antichrist. When he comes, he's going to take them all by surprise. But you know what? Whatever state you were in, that's going to be your state for eternity. If you were an unbeliever, you're going to be an unbeliever forever. 
If you were a believer, you will be a believer forever. If you were holy because you were saved, you'll be holy forever. If you were defiled or filthy because of your immorality, because you were an unbeliever, at that moment, whatever state the Lord finds you in, that is going to be your eternal destiny forever and ever and ever. There's no repentance in hell. There's no changing. Harry Ironside said in his commentary on Revelation, it is a divine emphasis upon the solemn truth that as a man is, that as a man is found in that coming day, so shall he remain for all eternity. In this world, God is calling men to repent, here and now. He waits to renew by divine grace those who commit themselves to him. But in the eternal world, there will be no power that has not been in exercise here to make the unjust righteous or the filthy clean. So once the Lord comes, that's it. The day of grace is over. Okay, no more chance. And if you are a believer, you're pure, you're holy, you will be that way forever. If you're an unbeliever, you're defiled, you're filthy in the eyes of God, you will be that way forever. Verse 12, he quickly adds, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And here I have to believe the emphasis is not on the unbeliever now, as in verse 11, but on the believer. Because I believe what Jesus is saying here is he's talking to his church. And he is telling his church that at the time of the rapture, we're going to be caught up to heaven. To, you know, we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, taken right into heaven where we are going to stand before him at his Bema seat, right? Uh, his Bema seat is the judgment seat of Christ. And what are we going to be doing there? We're going to be getting our rewards. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to their what? Work. Because once you receive Christ, you're heaven bound. Now, what's going to be determined the rest of your life is how you serve him and the rewards you accumulate because of what you've done for his name. So we're going to receive our golden crowns, our rewards, once he comes for us at the rapture. Verse 13, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And again, this ties us back to chapter 1 which was a prologue, which was introducing Jesus uh, as the one giving John this revelation. Of course, the term Alpha and Omega, beginning and, and first and last, these are titles for God that take us even back into the Old Testament because we read in Isaiah and other places that God called himself the first and the last, right? Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It signifies the fact that God started everything and God's going to finish everything. We know of Jesus Christ that He created all things. He's the author and the finisher of our faith, but He is the source, the beginning of the creation of God. The word there is a word that means source. He brought everything into existence, and because He's God, he can, He's going to culminate everything exactly the way He wants. So everything God begins, He finishes. God never leaves anything undone. He who has begun a good work in you is going to do what? He's going to complete it. He's going to finish it. All right? Nobody gets saved and begins, God begins a work, a work of construction in our life and then all of a sudden abandons it. He's always working. Now, we have a part in that. And if we are not willing to walk with God faithfully and we're not in the Word, the construction process can take quite a bit longer. But God is always working as much as we allow Him. And because He's God, He doesn't force us to be sanctified. He urges us. He admonishes us. 
to walk worthy, to draw close to him every day so he can do the work he wants to do, making us like Christ. But a lot of that's up to us. But these are titles for God, and Jesus is claiming his divinity here. But verse 14 says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. If you love me, what? Who is he talking to in John 13? Unbelievers? No, believers. So the idea that those who do his commandments, he's not talking about salvation by works. He's just simply saying, if you love me, if you're really one of mine, you're going to keep my commandments. And so those that are seen keeping his commandments, they are the ones who are genuinely saved, and they have a right to the tree of life. And they may enter through the gates into the city. Now, as I said earlier, the Garden of Eden was the original location for the tree of life. And God had it in the garden next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by the way. And we read in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Now the Trinity is talking among themselves. And Adam and Eve have just eaten the forbidden fruit, and they have fallen. Behold, the man has become like one of us, God says, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he drove out man and placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, again, I'd like to tell you I know exactly what all of this means. All as I know is this. In the Garden of Eden, there were a lot of trees. Two of them are named. One was the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The other was the tree of life. God said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, there must have been thousands, if not millions of trees in the garden. I mean, it wasn't like there was a lack of food. All right. Uh, but, you know, as soon as God said you can't do one thing, man was drawn to that one thing and didn't take long before he did it and fell. And so now God says, look, man has become like one of us, the Godhead speaking to itself, knowing good and evil. Unless he take his hand now and eat from the tree of life, we better put two cherubim, two cherubs, cherubim, to guard the tree of life so man doesn't reach out and take of that fruit and eat. The implication seems to be if man was to eat from the tree of life in his fallen state, he would go on forever as an unregenerate, fallen creature who could never be redeemed. You say, I don't understand that. I don't quite get it myself. But that seems to be what, the, what God is saying here. That when man ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and fell, God didn't want him to eat from the tree of life and go on forever in that fallen state. And so he put angels there to protect the tree, to keep it from, from man. But now we see it here after the plan of redemption has been worked out and Jesus has lived and died and those who have received Christ of all that would receive Christ are in heaven. Now we see the tree of life planted now in the New Jerusalem. And now God encourages us to eat, no doubt, because he intends that we live forever. But again... We read about the tree of life as a promise that Jesus gave in Revelation 2, verse 7. He said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, true believers, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. But outside, verse 15, are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, 
and whoever loves and practices a lie. Outside the city, yeah, way outside, somewhere in the outer darkness is where the lake of fire is. And that's where all unbelievers are. We read about this in Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So outside the city are going to be all those that are defiled. Remember, those that are defiled will be defiled still and so on. Well, they're going to be in the lake of fire in hell. Way, way out in some remote region of the universe where no light penetrates. This idea of outside our dogs. Dogs were scavengers in the ancient world, never considered unclean. Defiled animals. Uh, Paul also mentions legalists, calls them dogs. The Gentiles were called dogs. It's just a term for unbelievers uh, of any state of defilement. The idea is that outside the city is all defilement. Nothing that is defiled will ever be allowed to enter this city because God is on the throne and God will not allow anything that is defiled or unholy to come into his presence. And so outside the city you have all the rest of humanity. All those people who love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. All those people who said we will not have this man rule over us. Those like Henley who said, you know, um, it matters not how straight the gate nor how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And so God says, fine, be the captain of your soul out in the utter darkness. You don't want me. You didn't want me as your God. You didn't want to bow the knee to my lordship in your life. You wanted to do your own thing. I wanted to have fellowship with you forever. You didn't want any part of me. Outside you go. And so that will be where they will spend eternity. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Well, right there we have an indication of both the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Interesting. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things in the churches. I am the root of David. The root of David means I brought forth David. I made David. But I'm also the offspring of David. How is that possible? Because God became man. By the Holy Spirit placing the seed of God, Jesus Christ, in the womb of Mary, who was a descendant of David. And so David, Jesus, and this confused the Pharisees, by the way. You know, he gave them fits, you know. They always thought that they were going to trap him, you know. and do, He always turned the tables, right? And uh, after a few times of trying to trap him, you know, and he always turned the tables on them. He said, i got a question for you now. Oh, okay. David, uh, the Messiah, okay, whose son is he? Who's he going to be? Whose son is he going to be? And they said, uh, the son of David. Well, then how can David in the spirit call him Lord? If he is going to be his son, how can he be his Lord? See, in that patriarchal culture, a father never called his son Lord. The son always called the father Lord, right? And here the Jesus was giving these Pharisees or Sadducees fits by saying, look, what does the scripture say about the Messiah? Whose son is he going to be? Well, the son of David. Well, then how does David in the Psalms call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my footstool until I make at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How can he be David's son, but David calls him Lord? And after that, they dared ask him no more questions. 
because they didn't understand Messiah was going to be both God and man. See, that's the idea. That's what he was getting at. Now, the idea of morning star, he calls himself the bright and morning star. Warren Worsby says, The morning star announces dawn's soon arrival. Jesus Christ will come for his church as the morning star. But when he returns to judge, it will be as the sun of righteousness and burning fury, quoting Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3. Because God's people look for their Lord's return, they keep their lives clean and dedicated to him. So he is the bright and morning star. He is going to show up at the dawn of a new day. Yes, a new kingdom age, the millennial kingdom. Verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Well, obviously, this is the final invitation in the Bible for sinners to come to Jesus and be saved. We see invitations all the way through the scriptures, and they're always prefaced with the word, what? Come. Not go, come. I disagree with those who say that God has decided for all of us what we're going to believe. Those of us he has ordained to eternal life, we're going to believe whether we like it or not. Those that he has reprobated to hell for all eternity without ever having a chance to be saved, that's the way it is. Because God is God, he can do what he wants. He can make all these people and choose a small percentage to be saved and say the rest of you you're doomed to spend eternity in hell. But if that was true, God wouldn't be saying, come. If we didn't have a free will, what would he be saying? Go. Do. He's the puppet master. I'm the puppet. I mean, if that's the way it really is and I have no free will in the matter, then God isn't telling me, come. He's not inviting. He's commanding. And that's not what he does here. These invitations are all throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He's talking about salvation. He's basically saying, come to me and I'll satisfy you. You know, food, okay, satisfies. Wine, an emblem of joy. You don't have to have any money. You just come to me. Receive my son is what he's saying and you'll be satisfied, and you'll have joy. You won't be filled with wine. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. John 7, verse 37. says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Matthew 11, verse 20, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this is the last invitation of the Bible, the last invitation to come before it's too late is the idea. While there's still time, come. Salvation's a free gift. You don't have to do anything. Just come, believe. I want to save you. I want to, I want to keep you from what's coming. Even as Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants us to come. He wants us to come before it's too late. I'll wait until I see the Lord and I stand in heaven. I, then I, I'll, you know, I'll know you guys are right and I'll talk to the Lord. He'll let me in. If you wait to see his face, it's too late. It's too late. Come and receive salvation before it's too late. Verse 18, 
For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to them the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. You think it's a serious thing to tamper with the word of God? It's interesting that years ago, back in the 80s, Reader's Digest decided to come out with a condensed Bible. I forgot what they called it. Anybody remember that? It was a condensed Bible. They, they wanted to take out all what they thought was extraneous information for the fast-paced person who doesn't have a lot of time to read all that. So they decided they were going to whittle it down to a nice little bite-sized piece. And they whittled Revelation to pieces. And they also took out this last part, too. <laughs> you would imagine, right? But this is something that God throughout the entire Scripture warns us against. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I command you, speaking to Moses now, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Later in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for